Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. Humanoids from the deep dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode will see guests and myself give our take on an important movie, monster, and or film, and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. Today's episode, we will be covering a topic that I find extremely interesting, Invisible Friends, and the film Daniel Isn't Real with our special guest, director Adam Egypt Mortimer. Hello. Uh, I am real. <laughs> he is real. I swear. I did make this up. Fans of the show can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts on this part of the universe. And follow us on Twitter at HOT Deep Dive. I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm an entertainment contributor for Forbes and Looper and with bylines all over the place on everything from Frankenstein to the devil and hell. And I've basically I've done all the monster stuff all over the place. And if it's monsters, I'm obsessed with it. I'm also pleased to introduce our excellent co-host for today's episode, Mike Vaughn, founder of The Video Attic, your source for reviews, news, and exclusive interviews. So welcome everyone, and thank you all so much for for today's episode. I uh, to say I'm looking forward to it is a bit of an understatement. Just to give uh, a, a brief introduction to Daniel isn't real. I'm sure if you like this show, you already know it. Uh, but shy child Luke accidentally witnesses the aftermath of a nearby mass shooting, and while at the scene, he encounters another boy who sort of appears almost out of nowhere. The, the suave and confident Daniel and the two become quick best friends. Trick is Daniel is quote unquote imaginary. <laughs> he gets darker and darker pushing Luke further and further until he fatefully convinces Luke to poison his own mom. And this is really early. This is not even, this is barely spoiler territory. This is like the first four minutes of the movie. Yeah, literally like it's, <laughs> it's like how like us is all like, heartwarming and then heartbreaking in a short amount of time this one's just like oh wait oh no so after convincing luke to poison his mom uh, luke banishes him into a dollhouse locks him away and then we rejoin luke as uh as a young man in college who is struggling to deal with some personal issues and his mom's declining mental health he while visiting his mother he unlocks his childhood dollhouse releases daniel and Daniel starts again first as a helpful friend, but then as before, things get much, much darker. Uh, so how we normally do this uh, on an episode with with a guest of the film is uh, we first give our general impressions and then we ask you questions. And then I'll go into a little context about the, the entity uh, per se, and then we can dig into the themes and meanings and that sort of thing. Um, cool awesome so so mike would you like to start uh with your your impressions of the film sure uh you know really liked it um i enjoyed it the first time i watched it and then i watched it this morning just as a nice refresher um and yeah it, it's um such a great movie i think it has 
not only is it extremely well directed, but it has um, a great visual style. Like I was mm-hmm. like kind of bowled over by, um, especially um, like towards the finale, just how um, beautifully it was uh, shot and the visual shots. Um, I mean, it, it's really impressive, especially on what I assume was probably a, um, a, a pretty modest budget. Um, that, but it doesn't look it doesn't look at it at all. It's yeah, it's great. Um, I like the characters. I thought it was a really interesting um, premise. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's like um, you know we I get as a critic I get bombarded with these screeners of like creepy children with imaginary friends like <laughs> all the time. Um, <laughs> and you know, but it takes that, but it it, it puts such an interesting spin on it. Um, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of um, world building, which I think is also kind of very well handled. So yeah, all around really good movie. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I similarly, you know, I, I cover all sorts of films and uh, I, I really love the way that this develops the first they get how it orients around the question of if Daniel is or isn't real until later in the film. And then uh, I think both the performances, the performances are, are really great. Uh, I love the visuals also. And I love the design of the, the entity in its true form. Uh, I think altogether, like I, I remember when I first watched it, I was engaged the entire time. I really loved it. It was doing things that I thought were very novel. And yeah, I, I thought it was super cool. I'm just, I still really, really, really love it. Like I rewatched it last night and uh, I had a blast. You know, I, I think it's, it's pretty good too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, No, I was, it was, you know, I I remember I I had a feeling after I was done shooting it before we edited it, um, which is a, you know, it's a funny period in making a movie because once you sit down and sort of look at your first assembly (laughs) edit, you start to hate the movie for a while until you love it again. But when I um, I got home from New York, <clears throat> having shot it, and I I I did I felt this kind of um, amazing sense of peace. Um, mm. You know, th- th- this one um, was my second movie, second of three so far, mm-hmm. and and my first movie was re- you know really challenging, and 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 w- well, they're all insanely challenging. But it, it, in that one, I was sort of learning how to even make a movie and. And sort of looked at something. I was like, "Oh, okay, I got some ideas across, but it was very compromised." And like, boy, sure. uh, you know, I hope, I hope I can figure out how to do better next time, kind of thing. And and, but with this one, when I when I got home from shooting it, I, I felt like, okay, I I left it all on the floor, and if I get run over by a bus, uh, I I will have done something something <laughs> something bus worthy. Is <laughs> that's really how I sort of look at the the trajectory of my life in terms of like, you know, how 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 okay is it to have, to get run over by a bus now? Yeah. <laughs> that's not a bad marker though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> once when you turn when you turn over your shoulder and you've got that, you know, 0.8 seconds before the bus hits you, are you okay with it or not? <laughs> And, then, like, and immediately like, following the filming of this movie, I was okay with the bus. <laughs> That's good to know. And and the bus, fun fact for the folks at home, uh, was driven by Daniel. <laughs> All along. Yeah. I have lots of uh, questions that I want to talk about, but I wanted to, to actually give my co-host uh, a chance to ask the first one if he would like to. Okay. Uh, I, 
actually, my, my first question was going to be, um, you know, you work with some uh, children actors and, um, you know, there's that old adage of never work with children or animals. Uh, did you uh, find it particularly challenging um, to work with with kids? Yeah, I mean, you know, so the first thing we did was we had to cut the animals out of the movie to make <laughs> so that we can... <laughs> <You're> like... <laughs> there actually there had been, um, you know, the way that it unfolds now is that he poisons his mom um, in the book uh, that we based it on. I, you know, I, I co-wrote the script with the with the novelist and um we, on the book it was based on in, in early versions of the drafts luke actually had a pet dog and they poisoned mm. the dog and it died and um it was horrific and oh. uh I, I i think at a certain point in in writing it i was like brian if we kill a dog this early in the movie or even <laughs> at any point in the movie we're gonna lose so many people <laughs> Yeah. Like you just, you don't gain anyone. You might, you know, some people might be like, oh, that's really sick. I like it. But like, mostly you just lose people. And um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a big uh, <laughs> proponent of not having like films where dogs violently die, especially yeah. violently die. I'm yeah. like, I mean, I, I'm the same way. I'm like, you can kill anybody basically. Yeah. Just make sure the dog's okay. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's yeah. Like, like you, you poison I've said like such a monster, but this is the perfect podcast. So, okay. Um, like you, po- you poison the mom in a film and I'm just like, Oh, you shouldn't have done that. But you right. poison the dog. I'm like, I did zero stars. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I think it's so funny. Like we literally made that choice of like, Oh, it's way better if they just poison this human woman <laughs> than if they poison this animal. Um, but uh, yeah, so we cut the animals out. Um, no, it is. I find it super challenging to work with kids. Um, you know, my, my, I, I really like working with actors and, and my, my, my sort of process of working with adult actors or young adult actors is, is extremely collaborative and like really getting to understand the script and doing a lot of rehearsal and, you know, sort of talking about personal, you know, things that have happened to me that are sort of like emotionally what's going to happen to you in this movie and that sort of thing. And, and I don't find I could, you know, it's a really different kind of strategy with kids. I think, um, you, you know, what we wound up doing a lot of times was roll the camera and not call action, you know? So like mm. there's um, you know, there's this cool sort of sequence where they're lying on the floor and they have these paper cutouts of like clouds and things. So that it sort of mm-hmm. looks, you know, they're playing like they're flying, but we're looking down on them and it's, you know, we just, we mounted a camera and had the kids, you know, lie down there and then, and just started rolling and rolled for a long time, you know, and, and then they just sort of did the things that kids do. And I would, make suggestions but it wasn't you know i tried to avoid being like okay everybody quiet and you know action and like the you know because the minute you do that they stop being kids and turn into these weird (laughs) awkward things that think they're supposed to be performing um and i Mm -hmm. you know i think we did that like in the sequence where they're playing with the where, where daniel's teaching him how to do origami you know like that scene's scripted but the way we did it was to turn on the camera and and then say hey man can why don't you show him how you made that origami thing? You know, like yeah, to make it real. Yeah, to to really try to make it this you know sort of in in the in the moment thing. And um, you know, I think it's funny when you when you were describing the the premise of the movie to describe Daniel as suave at that point. <laughs> I mean, certainly certainly Patrick, you know, once he comes on and he's like the most handsome yeah. man on the planet is suave. But you know, this like ten year old playing him, it's funny to call him suave. But we did, I think <laughs> you know, 
he we gave him very you know sort of interesting outfits and he you know kind of sparked to the concept of, of the character was so he he had did have a kind of suaveness but um no it's very challenging i i would have i think it, it would be i it would be difficult for me to do like a whole movie starring children um i often am sent scripts <laughs> as you can imagine having yeah. made a movie like this right like you just get tons of scripts where it's like and here's this eight-year-old boy in peril and i'm like do you understand that this means you're asking me to just spend months of my life working with an eight-year-old and try to make you know it's like i i, I don't know i i i mean i have <laughs> you know my i'm the thing i'm most interested in is like the fucked up complexities of adult emotions mm -hmm. and what those look like when you put them in a crazy genre world and so yeah. it's hard for me to do that with kids, but I, I, and also, you know, it's interesting. We also, um, we shot a lot more. There was a lot more. I probably could have had like 18 minutes of this opening with these kids. Like mm -hmm. we, we shot an entire sequence where they're in the park and then this giant sandcastle like comes out of the sand of the, of the sandbox. There's a sandbox in the park. And like we built, you know, like an eight foot balsa wood castle covered in sand and shot it, you know, mm -hmm. and they're looking at the sand cow, all this stuff. And like, um, just, f I, I felt like once we got into, you know, the first edit, which is always like, it's like two hours and 16 minutes. And you're like, Jesus Christ, this movie doesn't need to be that long. You're, and, you're and like, is it? <laughs> yeah. And it, and it didn't, <laughs> the movie didn't feel like it started really. Like you don't really like lean into the movie. I don't think until the first shot where you see Miles who, who plays Luke you know, and he's sitting on top of a roof and he's doing his homework and you're like, is he suicidal? Is he just hanging out? What's happening? Like the minute you see his face, the movie starts. And so I felt like we needed to cut the stuff with the kids in a way that was so, you know, and like we were saying at the beginning, it's only, you know, three or four minutes long to cut it in a way that it almost feels like a flashback or something like the mm -hmm. movie has only just started, but you're sort of in the speed of a memory instead of like really taking it. Your, yeah. your time to live with these people and it's like a whole almost act before you know i, I wanted mm -hmm. to not do that and, and so i think that that speed of things allowed us to like just lift the best moments with the kids and you know kind of put them into this world but you know there's such moments of sweetness that kid that plays luke like when he gives his mom the origami tea set and yeah. he's wearing his little dinosaur pajamas and she gives him a hug i'm just like oh this is just so adorable <laughs> I know, he seems like and i, I know that like you know this is partially performance quote unquote but also their kids um I'm, so i'm realistic about that but like he seems like like uh, he has that genuine vibe you yeah. know sure um, yeah i mean he was an a genuine six-year-old <laughs> you know he was really, but he's I a really he was like he's 30. an adorable kid a really good performer i mean you know we auditioned tons of kids and 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 he really, and he was even a problem in a way because he was a little bit younger. You know, you always want to be like, well, if they're eight years old, then they can be, then they can work for like two extra hours a day or whatever. And, but, uh, you know, I saw Griffin, who's the kid who, who plays Luke. And, and I was like, he's just so, such a sweetheart. You just want to hug him. That is the whole point here is we need to just want to hug this kid. Um, so he was a little bit younger and it made it even more challenging, but, but it was important. And, um, you know, I think what what's funny, the kid that plays Daniel is, you know, also like a sweetheart, really a sweetheart. Like, I don't think he, um, you know, innately has any, <laughs> or at least not yet at the age of nine or 10 or whatever he was, like, <laughs> didn't yet have any of the innate 
evil. Um, but, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, we, you know, and he's a blonde like Patrick is. So we dyed his hair black. So we would have like the light eyes and the dark hair and sort of match what Patrick mm-hmm. looked like. And he, I think he was excited to be a bad guy. I don't know if he felt in his heart <laughs> what it means to be a bad guy yet. I hope he never does, but you know, it certainly at this time of life, he did not. <laughs> That's perfect. So I'm wondering just as like a really quick, like, um, like, uh, maybe like a side question of that. Did, did you let the kids like ad lib a little bit or? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think, um, you know, like, like I'm saying the, I, you know, you know, there's a part where he's like, we're, we're jumping out of a helicopter and like get your, you know, film it with your camera or whatever. Like, I think he kind of made all of that up. You know, I was like, okay, you guys are playing that you're like jumping, you're, you're flying or something. You know, there was a lot of, they were just playing, they were doing, you know, playful kid things. Um, so there was, there was that, there was that sort of like, you know, lifelike improvisational. Yeah. It does have that like organic feel to it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask uh, what inspired the story for you? Well, I mean, it was, it's based on a novel. So I read, I read the novel and, um, and I think the thing that I'm discovering that's, that's so interesting is that you're, you're first pulled to, to a work or a story, what other something you find or something that you invent, you're first pulled to it for one reason, a kind of surface reason, maybe, you know, I read this novel and I was like, holy shit. Like, you know, and in the novel, it was like, you know, there's this opening sequence where they're running around outside of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and a dinosaur comes to life and they're shooting at a dinosaur with squirt guns. And and and, and I was just like, this is this has such a visual, this is telling something really internal in such a visual way, such an externalized way. And it, it has this really like visionary aspect and that will be cool to make a movie. And it, and, and, mm-hmm. and something, and it kind of reminds me of Pan's Labyrinth, you know, like kids, but these, yeah. you know, are these things real or not? And this sort of mm-hmm. visionary creature landscape. And um, <clears throat> so then we started working on it. And then as I'm working on it, I start to relate it to real life or, or my life. And, and I'm going, oh, this is like a universal story about how we all want to be a good person, mm-hmm. but we have this voice in our head or these impulses that are negative and like, how are those us or are those coming from something else? And how do we deal with that? And, you know, and, and, and it became mm-hmm. like sort of this general thing that I thought we could all relate to. And, and, and then I continued working on it and it was like, oh, this is entirely like what happened when I was in college with my best friend who had like a, a very drastic you know, schizoaffective, uh, manic depressive breakdown. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I sort of had a, a flash of insight that like all of the way that that experience felt would be how this movie should feel, you know? So it's mm-hmm. sort of, um, it grows like the, the, imp- the impulse to do it. And then what it's really about. I feel like you can let that sort of organically expand while you, you know, and then you look back on it and go, wait, did I really just do this movie because it had a chapter of kids running around with a dinosaur, which isn't even in the movie, or was my, you know, unconscious telling me to do it for reasons that it did not yet want to divulge to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely like a kind of a whore Calvin and Hobbes. Totally. Will. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. How fun would it be? Maybe later in my life, I'll get to do a Calvin and Hobbes movie and and, yes. and we'll be able to compare oh, it to Oh, heck yeah. Dibs you know? on co-writing because that sounds <laughs> awesome. 
Um, and then uh, real quick before I kind of uh, we kind of go into more of the thematic stuff, I kind of wanted to ask you now the I haven't read the original book, but uh, was the entity's visage its its full visual look uh, really detailed in the novel or how much of that was? was something that you developed that was not in the novel at all um the novel takes a much more um ambiguous stance it's it's very mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. i think brian was inspired by like the turn of the screw where yeah you never come down on one side in turn of the screw of whether or not there's ghosts or insanity um did not come down on that and i wanted at a certain point i was like this this needs to eventually become a movie about an actual demon and um, so that was all very invented for the movie. <clears throat> and um, cool. amazingly, the, oh, I don't know if it's amazing at all. It's just a fact. Um, the, 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 the first person who we ever brought in to collaborate on the movie after, you know, uh, beyond the, the, the writer that I was working with and, and beyond the producers was uh, the creature designer. And he, uh, this guy, Martin Astles, mm-hmm. um, who came on, probably a year before we even had financing or started working on the movie in any serious way, he came on and we had these sessions together uh, just to try to figure out what the entity would look like. And Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, because it was going to define, I think so much of the style of the overall movie, you know, it's like, there's, you know, one thing, the, the one thing that was in the book and that we were very passionate about from the, from the beginning and writing it was that, the the way that Daniel manifests here and there when he manifests would would have to really involve physicality. Like we didn't want him to be somebody who could you'd see him just sort of like phase through a wall or be kind of ghosty or like you know mm-hmm. dissolve out, dissolve in. It 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 had to be like he could not physically interact with stuff, and then when he did was able to physically interact, it would be really physical mm-hmm. and fleshy, and it's sort of like a theme about how desperately he wants to have a body. And so that had to, you know, so the scene where they transform, right, Mm -hmm. in the exact middle of the movie, when Daniel takes over Luke, I think originally it was sort of in the script, it was written as like their faces flash, you know, it's this really vague thing. But but, But then when it came down to design it, I was like, it has to be like this flesh, melting, bone cracking, physical thing and and similarly yeah. so when we were designing the demon it was like you know it it, it i wanted it to almost feel like it's def, de, um defying space and time it has this almost cubist aspect where mm-hmm. if you rotate it around from every different angle it looks really different and it looks mm-hmm. architectural its head looks like the spires of the castle it lives in and its jaw looks mm-hmm. like a spiral staircase and when i first met martin <clears throat> He, he presented, he had like kind of like all of these references. He was like, take a look at all these images. And um, a bunch of them were, were just kind of like, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, kind of like I'm a demon because I have like bumps on my head and some fangs. And I was like, dude, like we got to go like real far beyond this kind of thing. You know, it's got to be like mm-hmm. real psychedelic and visionary. And he was like, oh, I'm so glad you said that. I just put those in there to trick you to see whether or not you wanted to do some boring shit. (laughs) And then you turn the page and it's all like insane surrealist paintings and cubism and fucking like dogs with spider heads and shit. And I was like, okay, Martin, I am on your page. I'm so glad to have that story. (laughs) Um, That's awesome. Yeah. 
I think it's so interesting to me too, because uh, yeah, it definitely has that like almost natural bone growth crown, but it's like a deformed crown. Like everything about it is askew and off and wrong. Yeah. And I think that's so cool. Yeah. It's super asymmetrical, which makes Mm -hmm. it really disconcerting. And it's very much in decay. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it it, it looks like something that maybe it once made a little bit more sense, but it's just been so fucked over time. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, okay, so I want to, before we kind of talk about thematic stuff, uh, do a little bit of an aside on on the conceptualization of this episode and why I put it about Invisible Friends. Because technically this is uh, a demon of some kind. Uh, I, I think an extra dimensional demon, yes, from another place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so I, I was thinking about, how, well, how do I classify this? And there's so many different in, you know, folklore and whatever. Every culture has something that fits the description of a demon with a different backstory. And they're always defined by what they do. Mm-hmm. And so it's, mo- it's MO, it's modus operandi, is to be um, a literal devil on your sol- shoulder in a way, but, but beside you as your invisible friend. And I couldn't put imaginary friend because... He's not imaginary. But the funny thing is, I tried to look to see if there's a lot of folkloric background to the concept of invisible friends. And there is and there isn't. It's very weird because so you have a long history of different cultures having entities or gods or whatever that they talk to as though they're talking back. And for some mystics, they do, I guess. Uh could be fairies, elves, angels, whatever. But there's not really uh, a concrete study of imaginary friends until, what, the the 1900s, I think, where it was, like, examined as its own phenomena. And so, but, but by this point, every culture recognizes that that's part of, a, that's a common part of childhood, especially. Uh, and there's a lot of, theoretical disagreement on when imaginary friends is like a a thing that children often do uh occurred as a common phenomena Mm -hmm. and so such an interesting concept for me um because there's a lot of cultural especially modern cultural stories that involve it but the folklore it's not really there although there's uh people interact with all sorts of creatures in the exact same way that have their own folkloric identities. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but obviously it has like cultural precursors like Anne and Anne of Green Gables had two imaginary friends, Hobbes mm-hmm. and Calvin and Hobbes. Um, Harvey in the, in the yeah. film Harvey. <laughs> yeah, totally. As a famous one. Um, and so, and now there's a lot, but I'd like to think that, that part of that emerged more recently. Like I noticed that your film came out and then I saw a lot more imaginary friend horror films well the one the one that people kept on bringing up to me that drove me insane was um uh oh fuck what is it called fred something crazy fred drop dead fred drop dead fred (laughs) so i hadn't seen drop dead fred and then i remember um every so often when i was talking to somebody about this movie even like my agent they'd be like yeah it's it's creepy drop drop dead fred (laughs) <laughs> and I'd be like, like what the fuck are like, you talking about? No? 
And then I, I watched that movie and I mean, it is very similar, you know, sort of if you just look at both of them from a, here's the Wikipedia plot synopsis. Point yeah, of view, right. Which is my least favorite way of thinking about movies. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in that sense, they are similar. And, um, but also it's funny because watching that movie, I, I watched it before we filmed this and it made me really want to make sure to not, film our movie the way they filmed that movie <laughs> which is mm -hmm. that i didn't one of the things that i find frustrating about that film is and some of it's great like i you know i love the, the protagonist I, I think she's a wonderful actress and you know it's a fun movie but like it doesn't have any conceptual vision there's not a visual concept mm -hmm. that would ever lead you to believe that fred is imaginary or Mm -hmm. has anything to do there's there's no visual connection between him as a psychological construct and, and and what you're seeing he's just some actor in a wacky costume running around on the mm -hmm. on the set which i found to be really sort of distracting and i was like i i need to shoot this movie in a way where the the audience will will understand that we're seeing a character that other people are not seeing and we accept it and we simultaneously hold in our head the idea that he is not real, not visible, but also is visible to us and to Luke. Yeah. That, that was like the main thing that really drove my design of the movie and, and to sort of sit in that middle ground, which I think is, you know, sort of related in a concrete way to what you're saying about the tensions of invisible friends or imaginary mm -hmm. friends or how they work sort of mythologically or culturally. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the whole process of figuring out how to shoot this movie was about how do we, um, how, how do we show the invisible in a way, you know, yeah. how do, how do, how do you make, you know, cause making concrete, the imaginary is just what all movies do all the time. None of this right. stuff is really happening. Right. Let's pretend it's happening and film it. But the, but to, to make visible the invisible, uh, you know, and the scenes where, you know, Patrick is standing right next to Miles shouting in his ear and Hannah Marks is staring at both of them, but is pretending she can't see him. How do you pull, how do you make that okay and not feel, yeah. and not have the audience feel like they were betrayed is I, I think something that that's the thing that makes the movie what it is. I think, I think the fact that that worked, that we, that we sort of spent so much time trying to figure out how to make that work is, is why the movie has kind of a, a I don't know, a sensibility. Yeah, I would say that like like watching it again, uh, I noticed the care that was taken to put switch between like the objective mm -hmm. scene of like what we would say and then the subjectivity of Luke's perspective, even if the changes are subtle, but but it was done in a way where you could definitely kind of like weave back and forth like, okay, this is both yeah. is and is not here, depending on totally. where, like who you are. Yeah, and we yeah. and and we really like arranged, you know, for like a very specific, you know, sort of set of rules that had to do that, and and you know the the most crude and obvious one of which is that the whole movie is shot anamorphic lenses, but in those occasional times when you see the totally objective world without Daniel in it, we shoot those with a spherical lens, and there's just like a complete, mm -hmm. a subtle, you know, difference of sort of just what reality looks like. Um, but we got a little bit more nuanced and, and one thing <clears throat> that I really liked about working with Lyle, who's my cinematographer, basically the reason I hired him is because he's a Buddhist, like he spent, mm -hmm. you know, time living in like a, a, a Buddhist temple in Tibet, like, you know, really deep into it. So we started talking about 
there's objectivity, there's subjectivity, but but then there's like seeing things the way Buddha would see it, which is where he sees Buddha would see reality the way Miles, the, the way that Luke sees it. So he mm-hmm. would see Daniel while understanding that and like the psychologist sees in it a mind. finally yeah. towards the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. The psychologist sees it, you know, that's like this sort of merging of the realities of like, oh my God, now the now the objective and the subjective have all become one in a way that's that's the most objective. I think that whole sequence is shot in this like hyper objective clinical way where we have like all of these dolly moves and you're sort of like, you know, as he's exploring the room, you're seeing mm-hmm. all the corners of the room and Daniel's not there and we move this way and we move that way and suddenly, boom, he's there to really make sure you know, like we're in the world, we're perceiving the world. I, I, I that kind of stuff was fascinating, exhausting. It was so exhausting to work that all out. I don't, I'm not in a big hurry to do another movie with that kind of sort of metaphysical, oh God, I'll probably immediately do something like that again. But um, <laughs> but it was so exhausting to like make these rules and, and, and you know, try to constantly be explaining to people like, um, no, we can't shoot over his shoulder because that breaks the rule of blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just, it's just yeah. completely, it's just shit that makes you totally insane. I really like that conceptual idea, though, to like take the sort of the Buddha's eye lens as a way to frame the shot and, and thoroughly how you actually approach the scene. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. kind of like this interesting like hybridization of because we like to do like dig into the thematic mm-hmm. uh, elements of a film and it kind of marries that and the cinematography in a way that that I don't really get at in a lot of films. Right. And that, and that's sort of the thing that has become what I'm most interested in about in directing is uh is because i obviously you know i like to i want to do things that are really stylistic like daniel has a lot of color and cool music and you know my my follow-up movie arch enemy like very colorful very you know stylistic Mm -hmm. yeah things going on but um but to me like you 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 the the style has to come from like a total understanding of of the themes and the emotional reality so once you understand that stuff then you can be like "Ooh, what's the most you know expressive and interesting way to show this simple emotional or thematic idea and then that way it doesn't feel like um wow this guy is just putting a lot of neon lights around for no reason and i guess it looks cool but it's meaningless it's like real if you can really connect the theme with the style i think that's what a cinematic experience is entirely about which mm-hmm. is why like you know when i said sort of sardonically like the the wikipedia plot point is irrelevant <laughs> it doesn't matter what matters is how does it make you feel and the way that it, you get feeling is from the style flowing from the theme i wanted to say mike did you have anything that you wanted to ask thematically or otherwise i guess i i don't have a question so much as i i kind of like um thematically how you know you uh take this idea of Pandora's box. And I know you um, literally um, talk about the Louise, is it Louise Brooks film? Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Pandora's mm-hmm. box, which is yeah. <laughs> really cool. Cause even like when I first watched it and I was reviewing it, taking notes, I immediately was immediately was like thinking, Oh, this is like a cool kind of take on the Pandora's box kind of thing. And then when, when you um, telegraphed it like that, I thought that was really cool. Um, and then I also kind of like this this whole idea of the sins of the father, or more like the, like the sins of the parents, and 
you know, his kind of fear of, you know, becoming like his mother. I think we all kind of have that innate, uh, like dread, mm. um, a little bit of like maybe inheriting some of the worst traits of our uh, parents. And I thought that was, uh, interesting how you weave that in, uh, thematically, uh, into the narrative. Yeah, I, I think you're right. That is, that is something that like really haunts us all. It's something, you know, it's, it's in all of, our mythology and it's certainly you know i i remember um a couple of years ago i learned such an interesting phrase from a therapist that i that i was seeing at the time uh where she said um i was saying something about oh, i'm gonna go you know see my see my father this weekend you know that that has its ups and downs uh you know i mean he's great but so, but you, you know why why do we get so stressed out you know like over meaningless things when it's coming mm -hmm. from our parents instead of anybody else and and she said, she had this phrase, she said, you know, it's not just that they trigger us, it's that they built the triggers. Oh. And I was like, oh, that is a dope, yeah. I gotta think about that. Um, so mm -hmm. I think, you know, this um, this quandary that Luke is in, where he's possessed by a demon, but can only assume that he is going crazy and wants to suppress that craziness because of his mother is such a, I think, a you know, a powerful tragedy to be in. And it's why it makes it mm -hmm. so hard for him to know how to get help or how to talk about it or how to, you know, he's, it, cause he's not simply saying like, Oh, I have a problem. I should diagnose it. He's, he's afraid of the problem because it mm -hmm. has haunted his whole family. Yeah. It seems like, like in, in certain scenes until he absolutely needs to have answers, he doesn't want them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think his, his plan is um to just try to ignore it all. <laughs> You know, it's like mm -hmm. you always want to make stories about like you know what's a good, a good story is um a character who who like is really committed to sticking to a plan but it's a bad plan that's like where the best <laughs> stories come from and mm -hmm. i think his bad plan here is to be like i'm gonna ignore the fact that i'm possessed by a demon <laughs> yeah, exactly like nope not i'm 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 doing fine yeah. Listen, um, as we all I do also... right <laughs> yeah i mean yeah or else you stare into the <laughs> abyss and we see what happens. I also think, you know, this is something that um, just hearing you talk about um, the dread of becoming like your parents and stuff. There's a, just a really funny coincidental thing that wound up happening in this movie that was not intentional. Although I, I flagged it early on as being like, we're talking to my writer and I was like, Brian, I, there's going to be this real issue and people are going to notice it. And it's going to be a problem. And he was like, you're nuts. But it's that just simply by having his name be Luke, I just could couldn't stop thinking about Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> and um and and you know every time every so often you know Pat uh, uh, Daniel has this line to him like you're going to be a lawyer like your father Luke like your father I was just <laughs> it just sounded so loud to me and then at the end of the movie he's walking through that interdimensional hallway with the orange smoke and the fucking uh, you know the the neon lights and it mm -hmm. looks exactly like Bespin and then he's standing over the abyss which is this like <laughs> orange cloud abyss hearing the voice of a woman psychically calling his name which is Luke and then he jumps <laughs> it's like i remember we were shooting that day and i was like does everybody here recognize that we're just remaking empire strikes back like am i insane <laughs> <laughs> I could totally see that. That's kind of awesome, though. Yeah. <laughs> In it's retrospect, little... now it's awesome, and it's not like anybody was like your your little demon movie totally yeah. rips off Empire Strikes Back. This is first just of all, a Star Wars ripoff. Yeah, it's just. A, I mean, first of all, ripping off Star Wars is like 
you don't even get criticized for that. Like Marvel has made like 20 movies based on ripping off Star Wars. Yeah, like like a uh, difference at this point. Well, like Force Awakens is just a remake. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everything everything is a rip off of Star Wars. Um, mm-hmm. So this is the it's the least of my concern. But I do I just thought it was quite funny because it's so thematically that idea of like I don't want to become like my parent, but and my name is Luke. <laughs> yeah. I also I also like that like Daniel kind of functions as his id in a way. Oh, 100%. But yeah. it, but it's not in like a direct um it's not in a direct fight club way where he is a man manif- like a a mental illness variant manifestation of the id. Mm-hmm. It's just that he wants to facilitate your worst self. And that's what he I don't know if it's what well, yeah, I think this, what, yeah. what's interesting about about Daniel ultimately is that it's 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 he's not content uh, just to t- let you follow your id. It's it's his own id that you yes. know. It's like he's he's pure id, and he wants to destroy you so that he can you know. I mean, it's that's the thing. That's sort of the the quandary of that character. This demonic character is that he's. Um, He's more than just invisible. He's intangible. And, but the only thing he cares about after, you know, roaming the earth for a thousand years or whatever long it's been, all he wants to do is these really physical things. He just mm-hmm. wants to like have sex and, you know, get fucked up and do be violent. And um, and it's just been reduced to this like just pure aggressive id thing. And he needs a body in order to do it. Yeah. As opposed to having like a, you know, I think that's that was a choice that it's not like he's, you know, because you're like, well, I don't, why doesn't Daniel take over like the president and run the world? And it's like he doesn't he's not Machiavellian. He's just like he can't. He's impatient. That's his downfall. He just wants to fucking get on with it. And as soon as he gets your body, you know, you can tell from the previous, you know, the backstory that, you know, mm-hmm. the opening of the, of the movie, the minute he gets hold of John Thigpen, he just goes and shoots a bunch of people and then gets killed and he has to start all over again. It's like. It's really tragic how sort of impatient he is to get on with it. Yeah, he and, doesn't really have like that the the that long term goal vision patience ability. Yeah, yeah. And I think that just makes it every time I can just see. Fuck! I just got. I've only had the body for thirty seconds. I just got killed again. Fuck! It's gonna be another sixteen years and before then he I can work like my way into it. Take his time to yeah. like roam and find another. He's yeah. like, hey, that kid's here. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Like, yeah. He's just like on the move. Whoever's in arm reach. <laughs> like, uh, I do um, have one theory that I, I got to tell you. Uh, I think that the demon is behind Arthur Fleck's transformation into the Joker in Joker. Oh, interesting. I mean, I, he has that red suit. I, I got to say, yeah, we, so, so this is so insane how these things happen. I went into to the 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 concept of what we were doing in Daniel, like really obsessed with purple and violet. And there's a lot uh-huh. of purple and violet lights, yeah. and like the you know even these tiny little nods, like in the coffee shop at the beginning. The name of the coffee shop is in a violet neon light that's like almost out of frame. And it's and if anytime you see that light, it signifies Daniel is kind of making his presence known. But my costume designer was like, we can't put him in a purple suit because then he'll look like the Joker. I've got this <laughs> rad idea about a red suit. And I was like, holy shit, what a cool red suit. Like, let's run with it. And then we made our movie. And then the fucking Joker came out <laughs> and he's wearing the red suit. And I'm like, what yeah, the fuck is this? Which we deliberately tried to stay out of your fucking lane, Joker. <laughs> Which has like never been the Joker's like iconic thing. I know. 
But uh, so my my theory, though, is that what transitions him into becoming the Joker is that he's being pushed by Daniel, but we can't see it. Mm -hmm. I would totally buy that. I would I would love somebody out there has to do the fan um, fiction mashup and put Daniel in, in the world of. Yeah. Of, of and I also think they it also means they owe you some of that like billion plus dollars that it made. <laughs> some of that sweet, sweet fleck bills. Yeah, exactly. I think, <laughs> I think they owe you a little bit, and me a little bit, for... For talking about it, This yeah. is the finder's fee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I I love this movie. Um, uh, I think it's just so cool how, how the visual representation drives the film. And, um, yeah, I, I also... Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan, too. I mean, obviously, this is a monster movie podcast, so I hate... Uh, I like... Ambigu- ambiguous films but i don't like it when they're they push ambiguity and they end i'm like nope it's boring right um, i was yeah i mean that was the thing here where i was like and you know we actually the first draft of the script we wrote was really the exact opposite and mm-hmm. and it was structured in a way where from sort of early on you felt like you were watching a movie about somebody who was possessed by a demon and then it turns out he's just crazy and then he jumps off a roof and then I was like, this is terrible. It's <laughs> like, like the, the theme is horrible. The, the, the meaning of it is, is just awful. It's a, the reveal is like, ha ha, the world is more boring than you thought. Like it was just like that backwards twist just was horrible. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm much more of a, like, you know, ultimately I'm like, I'm a maximalist. Like I want, I just want things to be awesome. And it's like, no, we got to fucking reveal a monster. Like, if we don't reveal mm-hmm. a monster, who cares? You know, like yeah, I hate it when people were like, "No, no, no." It's just about a character's inner struggles, and there's no real monster. I'm like, why are you trying so hard to make it boring? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the lesson about about Jaws was really like w- taken way too literally when people are like, mm-hmm. "It's scary because you don't show the shark." Well, okay, but it's also scary because eventually you do show the shark and it rips somebody's fucking arm off, and that's awesome. You know, like, yeah, exactly. don't exactly. overthink the message. He couldn't afford to shoot the shark as well as he wanted, so you don't see it. That doesn't mean we can't have an awesome monster. Yeah, it wasn't a principled commitment. You, exactly. t- tell me, tell me, Frankenstein is bad because you see the monster. You see the Frankenstein right. monster. I'm sorry, Dr. Frankenstein's monster, the monster Frankenstein. You see him in every frame of the fucking movie and it's awesome. Right, right. or like like the host, you know, like Bong Joon-ho's. Yeah, that's uh, a dope or like, beast. It is, and it's just like everyone's minding their own business on the beach and then like full monster broad daylight. I don't care about yeah. your rules. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, plus I, plus I kind of love in Daniel that it's such a, a build up to like his actual form mm-hmm. and it, mm-hmm. it's it's like you said it's so interesting like conceptually um so yeah i i i think that um you know you guys do a really great job of like kind of um i mean daniel's a great uh you know bad guy uh anyways but then like you really ramp it up to uh the finale i think yeah no mm-hmm. thanks i I'm, I'm i'm glad that you that you felt that way. Imagine how, imagine if, it, if the monster had just been like a bummer. Like I, I think about that scene and like the music is like, and like, and like Luke is like slowly turning around in eyes and you see something moving in the background. And then like, we just showed up and he's like, I'm wearing a smiley face killer. 
you know, I'd feel like, what? <laughs> like he's just in a scream mask? I don't yeah, understand. Yeah, exactly. I don't, why, is, why is everybody so, why, why is this movie acting like it's a big deal? It's just, um, but, and, you know, again, that is why, like, that was the thing we started working on a whole year before the movie and, like, really thinking about that creature and spent so much money on that fucking, you know, application that then, you know, it's probably, you only see this thing probably in the movie for, like, 60 seconds maybe you know across like a couple scenes and um yeah but i think it it has a power because it's i think like you say because it's sort of oh, it's yeah. built up it's set up and then it does pay off visually and it's worth it i think i just have like one final uh question for you i mean there's i mean honestly i have like a half dozen if we had all the time in the world but but I, I, one thing I wanted to ask you is in the early scene where the where Daniel gets banished to the the dollhouse uh, mm. or the toy house, um, how like would you describe like why that that works to banish him for so long? Uh, I think that Luke is so deeply repressed that there's no mm-hmm. um, you know sort of psychological entry point for Daniel. And um, mm-hmm. and and Luke is refusing to look at or honor this part of himself, and it's why he's so miserable. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I think he's I think Luke is shutting off not just Daniel, but the, but all of the parts of himself that a normal person would be able to you know look at and express and say, oh, I have this creativity, I have this this id. You know, it's like mm-hmm. he shut it off so deeply. Um, so that Daniel is in this place, you know, and, and, and the yep. dollhouse is like, yeah. um, you know, it's sort of a node in like a giant network of things, you know, like that, yeah. that, that, that Daniel can access, but there's no, but this, this is the, he can only kind of go out one exit at a time. And this one's now blocked off. So he's, you imagine he's spent these past, you know, 10, 12 years wandering his hallways and, you know, playing with his battle axes and, and you know mm-hmm. dealing with his past his past victims who are just these like destroyed monsters and it's all just boring and horrible but he can't get out anywhere he 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 made this play and he blew it and and luke is holding yeah. on so tightly which is why when daniel does come out it's just, it's just you know this everything is in this like rush of emotion like his desperation mm-hmm. when he's trying to stop his mother from killing herself is um you know such a so he's an emotional, like he's, he's allowed, he's opened his heart to it by opening up the door to the, to, to the dollhouse that night. But, mm-hmm. but the emotional sort of like overwhelming, you know, crisis combined with having opened his heart is what lets Daniel appear in a bathtub filled with flower petals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, Cause it reminds me of um like in, in Joe Hill's work, you mm. have those inscapes, those mm-hmm. like inner landscapes that, and and those terminology like powerful creatives can make and they can take different forms like christmas land or like the mm. tree and horns but totally. in this it's like this dollhouse becomes like a spatial manifestation that mm-hmm. daniel gets confined to and locked away from and yeah and, that's and kind of how i think about I, it absolutely and and i don't know it's um you know, there's a lot going on in the movie and it was a subtle image, but, but when Luke is standing over the edge of the abyss, when he's about to jump back to, to our world in the wall of the fortress, you can see the, the dollhouse like jammed in there. Like it's you know, oh, just kind of mm-hmm. embedded in the wall. And, um, 
and so it's that sense of like it's you know there's there's probably all of these things throughout the world throughout the universe that are these different kind of like you know entry and exit points that are in the in the fortress like these little physical nubs that he would be able to come in and out of yeah oh that's interesting um i didn't catch that i'll check that out again um, i know sometimes you'll, you you do things it's a little too subtle it's like i got this vast awesome epic idea about you're going to be able to see the dollhouse and then and then the you're like, oh, this is no way anybody's going to notice that. <laughs> but it's there. <laughs> it's just Go like, back and there's, it's there. <laughs> yeah, it's just like there's there's so much detail. It's just one of those things where there's so much detail to see. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I love it. Hey, uh, I'll, I'll let you go. I know you stayed long anyway, which I really appreciate. Sure. Um, yeah, no, I'm sorry that we started late. But, um, you know, I love you guys' questions. And it's really like a it's a treat oh, to, yeah, to was, talk to you. Was... And, you know, anytime you can talk to people who take take a thing seriously and want to get into it is just wonderful. Yeah, that's, a, a, that's honestly the entire point of the show. I absolutely love finding stuff that that actually has layers of material to dig into. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome back anytime, even if no matter yeah, what you want to talk about. If you're like, I'd like to stop by and chat Frankenstein or whatever. I don't <laughs> like, open invite. That would be rad. Um, yeah. It was a blast. Mike, uh, let the folks at home know where they can find you. Yeah, so uh, I'm primarily on um, Twitter at Strange Cinema 65. Um, you can also find my book, The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema, on Amazon. And um, my letterbox is Kubrick655321. Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, Adam, uh, I know you're always working, you're doing lots of stuff. Is there anything that you can talk about that you're, you're working on at the moment? Well, um, <clears throat> yeah, Brian um, and I, Brian, who who wrote Daniel's Isn't Real with me, um, have a new script, uh, and we are we have financing for the movie, and we're working on the cast of it. Um, so it, it's, there's a good chance that I'll be able to shoot that movie, probably you know sometime this year. And I don't want to say too much about it, but it does have to do with mm-hmm. witches and capitalism. Uh, and Legit. It's, nice. it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> exciting. Awesome. It's pretty exciting, kind of relentless script. Um, so I'm very, very stoked, and, and hope I get to do that. And you know, of course, there's all, all kinds of other things I'm working on, but th- that one has like a concreteness to it um, that will hopefully it. make it happen. Uh, well, I look forward to there being a point where I can know more. And by the way, for the folks at home, uh, I just want to let you know I didn't say legit because I like capitalism. <laughs> That's not what that was. <laughs> um, I'm excited about the project. It sounds great. Um, we look forward to it. And and thank you again so much. It was awesome. It was completely awesome to get to chat. Oh, this is great. Uh, I love it. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. It's really a, a treat to talk to you. Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of record human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization. The need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. (laughs) 